Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the continuing battle over the future of policing in the city of Surrey. The latest development on this now The provincial government wants more time. They want more information before they make the call on whether the RCMP would stay in Surrey or they continue the transition to a local municipal police force. Brenda Locke, the Surrey mayor, says she wants the RCMP to stay in Surrey, and she says she told the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth, that. Here's what he had to say. Have a listen to this. We did have, a, a, I think, a productive conversation, and I let him know that it is the uh, jurisdiction of the city of Surrey to make that decision, to make the decision to uh, whatever police department we, we choose to have. Well, I'm not sure Farnworth would agree with that here. I think this is the province's final call here about how this is going to unfold. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Paul Danes. Paul is a member of the group Keep the RCMP in Surrey. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Paul, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for the invite, Mike. Okay, you bet. So you heard the mayor there say, look, this is our turf. Stay out of it. This is our decision. If we want to keep the Mounties, we can do it. Is she right? Yeah, um, Yes, she is. Um, but in fairness, um, it should be said that the solicitor general farmer has a statutory duty to ensure uh, public safety in, 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 in and throughout this whole uh, process. And I'm going to cut him a bit of uh, additional slack because since the um, responses were sent in by the SPS, the city and the RCMP. We've had Christmas holidays. Uh, Minister Farmworth has had his deputy minister um, retire. Um, so we've come a bit of slack on that. However, it is, in my opinion, and the opinion of our organization, it's not Minister Farmworth that is causing the delay and the response. Um, uh, let me just uh, preface that by saying the questions that have been asked by um, the province to the RCMP and the city are very general in nature, have been answered in five minutes, and the response is already on the minister's table. The biggest cause of delay is the Surrey Police Service and its chief, Lipinski, who have had questions from the province which they seem unable or incapable to answer, and they include, but are not limited to. What are the, uh, the, the phase one of the transition um, ends this May, phase one. How do the SPS pro, uh, pro, propose to proceed when, um, when we've got a mayor and council refusing point blank to sign off on phase two and at the <laughs> yeah. same time refusing yeah. to participate in the free government tripartite committee, which is critical to a successful transition? Well, it certainly is a mess. It is a standoff here for sure. Uh, I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. But speaking of the new chief of the Surrey Police Service, you just mentioned him, Norm Lipinski. He's been a frequent guest on this show, Paul. And yeah. his his point of view is, look, man, this is it's too late to go back now. We've spent a ton of money here. We've hired hundreds of staff. It's just it's too late to turn back and keep the RCMP. Let me play a clip here for him and get your thoughts on it. So this is the Surrey Police Service Chief Norm Lipinski here. Have a listen. If you look how far we've gone down the road, if you look at the money we put into this, if you look at the cost severance, if Mm -hmm. you look at the labor 
the the humanity part of this. Um, I would say to anybody standing on the street, if you uh, ask them, I think it'd be fair to say it's too far down the road. Okay, so if I go stand on the street and talk to the people of Surrey, Paul Danes, like the chief says there, what will they say to me? It's too far. Uh, This thing's gone too far down the road, he says. uh, Absolute nonsense. Misinformation and basically, um, you know, just trying to prolong what has been a torturous and very expensive process for, for the taxpayer. And furthermore, Chief Lipinski knows right fine well, as the city do and as the province do, that legal advisors to both the government and the city of Surrey say no legal mechanisms exist that can compel the mayor to sign off on phase two. And if the province or anyone else tries to force the mayor to do that, well, it will go immediately to a judicial review. And both the provincial government, Farmworth in particular, knows the city of what? Surrey and Brenda Locke would, would win. Paul, what is on the table here? What is at stake for the taxpayers of Surrey? I, I think that's... For a lot of people, that's where the rubber hits the road here. That's the bottom line. How much is this going to cost me? How much is this going to ding me in the wallet? The bottom line is it's going to cost an awful lot more, very, very substantially more. We're talking a couple of hundred million and possibly a 50% increase in property tax to go with the SPS option. And I would just like to just step back and and, um, call... Mr. Lipinski, on his humanity claims about the SPS. What does he think the um, RCMP members, uh, some seven, eight hundred of them in Surrey, and their families uh, have been going through for the last four plus years? So, humanity works both ways, and the, and the RCMP have been totally overlooked uh, looked on that. And the other issue Let- is this how does Mr. Lipinski? think that he's going to move forward on a, on a transition in Surrey, whilst at the same time is refusing to be accountable to the mayor and council, um, will, will, when asked politely by the mayor and council to cease any new hires or capital expenditures, he told them to go pound sand. That is ridiculous. We have, hey, let me, we let have, me ask you, Paul, let me ask you about something you just said there a second ago, that if you guys decide to keep going or if the province forces the city to, to continue with this transition to a local police force it's going to cost a ton of money you mentioned there a potential what did you say a 50 percent increase in property taxes yes um uh, uh, mayor and council mayor lock and council have been very very clear on that i mean what is also overlooked and mr lipinski seems to be unaware of or you're capable of understanding is that the city has a statutory obligation to balance its books it literally cannot do that until it gets the say on policing from uh, the provincial government. Uh, this is a situation that is very unpleasant for the mayor and council. I know that the mayor personally would really like to resolve this because there are other issues, believe it or not, she would like to get on with, like affordable well, housing for people to live in Surrey. And well, I know she wants to work with the premier on his new housing initiative and put this policing position uh, situation behind us. We've been dealing with this for four solid years, Mike. All right. Talking about the fight over policing in the city of Surrey, Paul Danes is my guest. He's with Keep the RCMP in Surrey. Full phone board, Stuart in Surrey. Hi, Stuart. Go ahead. Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Mike. I guess my, my biggest concern is how the Keep the RCMP group knows the questions that have been proposed by to the 
to the city and the SPS. Where's the leak? We know that the, the RCMP union funded the, the referendum and has and and helped fund the keep the RCMP. But there's obviously the leak there. What, what do you mean? What do you mean right. they know the? What do you mean they know the questions? What are you talking about? Well, he, well, he mentioned the questions that were that um, in, in, when he was speaking. He mentioned the questions that were proposed by the by the government. Paul Danes, what do you say? To, Paul Danes, what do you say to that? Uh, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Um, basically, we are aware of the questions because we stay informed with the key stakeholders in our community, such as the mayor and council, um, other police agency support groups. Yes, occasionally we talk direct and ask questions to the RCMP. We try to ask questions of the SPS. Not terribly easy to get a response from them on anything other than the time of day. Okay, so this is not secret information that you're privileged no, to here. No, absolutely okay. not. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, Clint. To suggest that it is. Clint in Surrey. Hi, Clint. Go ahead. Hey, hurry up. Listen. This this uh, 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 Prinsky uh, uh, fellow. He's he he's he's just a chief. He's not going to tell the city what to do. Number one. Number two. His second in command. He he was picked up for drinking and driving. You've got a criminal organization. I wouldn't want I wouldn't want this uh, running in Surrey. Whoa whoa whoa. Okay. Well, hang on a second here. Well, I don't know. Is anyone saying is Lipinski the the he's the chief of the Surrey Police Service? I mean, is he telling the city? What to do? Uh, it's not his call. Paul Danes. Um, yes, he is. Uh, um, mayor and council, and the mayor is also the chair of the police board, asked Mr. Lipinski to cease all further hiring and major capital expenditure until the province had had an opportunity to rule on the validity of both proposals. Well, didn't they stop the hiring? Outrageous. Mr. Lipinski is clearly trying to create his own personal mini police state in Surrey, accountable to nobody. Well, I thought they, I thought they, uh, I thought they had recently said they would stop the hiring. Yes, well, very recently, in the last couple of days or so. I think the back end of last week. That is a very least recent vote. Okay. Mr. Lipinski refused outright, and furthermore, um, the SPS, as the RCMP did each put in two reports to uh, um, uh, the Solicitor General. Um, the second of the two reports that the SPS put in, when asked by the chair of the police board and the mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke, to provide copy, they refused point blank. Oh, okay. Think about that. Mm. They, James... they want to be the police service of um, jurisdiction in Surrey and are not accountable to anybody. James in Surrey. Hi, James. Go ahead. Hi there. Hey, the Mounties are like one of the best trained forces in the world. Why would you want to go with anybody else? And I've lived in Surrey all my life. There's very little support for a Surrey Police Service. And one of the Surrey Police Service members last year was arrested for corruption. Why would you want them in a Surrey Police? That's it. Okay. I'm Thank you. Well, the RCMP, I mean, pe- people argue, Paul, that the RCMP is more suited to like a rural police force, a small town police force, and not not a big city like Surrey. What do you say to that? Yeah, well, that's mostly SPS supporters and uh, people who have got a grudge against the RCMP, like Kashid yeah, and, and Wally Opal. I mean, they've been up front from day one. They just want to get rid of the RCMP. I don't know what it was that the RCMP did to them, other than their claim that the RCMP take orders from Ottawa, which is absolutely yeah. ridiculous. 
the sorry RCMP have been policing this community for 70 years. They've done a first-class job. 50,000 people from our organization, organized by our organization, signed a, signed a petition to keep them, followed by another 42,000. Yeah. Keep the RCMP and Surrey have nearly two, uh, 115,000 supporters. The vast majority of people want to, uh, want to keep the RCMP. Poll after poll, say 70% plus, including mm. a poll put out by the um, city of Surrey under Doug McCallum, um, where they did a poll conducted by Professor Kurt Griffiths of SFU, which clearly showed 72% want, wanted to mm. keep the RCMP. The only way uh, we were able to get access to that poll was by Brenda Locke and then Councillor Hundell putting in a freedom of information request. It took six months. You know, they released that poll on of all days Christmas Eve. That mm. shows you the depths of deception and misinformation uh, that have been put out by the, the past mayor and his okay. sorry police service, headed by Chief Lipinski. Let's squeeze in one more call, Rob in Vancouver. Rob, you've got 30 seconds here, okay? Go ahead. Yeah, I actually also own a house in Syria. Lucky, I guess, my wife. Anyways, um, if my taxes go up, I'm going to compare them to last year, and I think the if they go up significantly, not a 10 or $20, I, I'm going to lay the blame squarely on the provincial government because clearly they're ragging the puck on this. And uh, I think the people of Syria are going to have a rude awakening uh, if this uh, you know, continues the way it's going. Okay, Rob, thank you for the call. Uh, Paul, we got 30 seconds left here. What's your message to the provincial government here? Get on with it or what? Um, yes. Um, you know, recognize you know, that the, 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 there is a humanity issue here and it needs to be resolved. And also, the city of Surrey have got other things they have to get on with and they can't get on with it until... They, they, they know what they're dealing with in their upcoming budget. So. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Mike. All right, let's talk about this story that is dominating Parliament Hill right now. MPs back to work now for a hotly anticipated session of the House of Commons. One of the stories is dominating question period right now. The lucrative contracts that have been handed out to McKinsey and Company. This is a large consulting firm. And look at the price tag here. More than $100 million in consulting contracts given to this company by the Justin Trudeau government since Trudeau came to power in 2015. The opposition parties on the attack over this against Justin Trudeau in the first question period of the session. Have a listen to this here yesterday. You're going to hear federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev trying to pin down Trudeau here on how much money has been spent uh, to this and given to this company. Have a listen to this exchange here. How much did his government give McKenzie? How much? Uh, well, the leader of the opposition snickers at the middle class. We will stay focused on supporting them. That's exactly what we did by bringing forward uh, supports for uh, rental, uh, rental uh, low-income renters, uh, supports uh, for families to send their kids uh, to the dentist. The well-connected insiders at McKenzie. How much did the Prime Minister give them? How much? We're going to continue to step up in investing in Canadians while uh, Conservatives continue to push cuts and austerity. Okay, that's the exchange yesterday between Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau. Pierre Polyev joins me now, leader of the Federal Conservative Party, leader of the official opposition in the House of Commons. Pierre Polyev, thanks for coming on today. Great to be with you. 
Okay, it was an interesting exchange you had with the Prime Minister there trying to pin the government down on, on precisely how much money has been given to this, this company here. The, the former head of which seems to be very friendly with the Prime Minister. We already know how much. It's like over $100 million, right? We don't know for sure because okay. it started early on in this controversy about a month ago. It started with a $50 million, $50 million total. And then... Later on, we heard it was $80 million. And then the government said, no, no, sorry, we got it wrong. It's $100 million. And then yesterday or the day before, they said it's $120 million. Yeah. So the money, the, the, the number keeps rising and rising. And we found it very interesting that the prime minister wouldn't answer the question. Asked him five times yesterday the total value of all the contracts his government has given McKinsey. And uh, that's why they call it question period, not answer period. We weren't getting any answers out of Justin Trudeau yesterday. What is the problem with the government uh, contracting with this company? I mean, this is a big company. It operates in a lot of different countries. I mean, even the former conservative government uh, had some contracts with this company, right? Well, one point on that. In 10 years, the Harper government had $2 million of contracts with this company right. for services rendered. That has now risen to $120 million, so it's a 60-fold increase in a shorter time period. And the second thing is that public servants have been calling journalists to, to ring the alarm bell, saying that the company hasn't been delivering work for value. There isn't actually value in the work they're delivering. In fact, much of their presence is disruption to the government. Third is, this company has since been engulfed in numerous scandals. The French president is under investigation for his interactions with McKinsey. The company had to pay $600 million to U.S. governments to compensate for its role in, quote, turbocharging the sale of dangerous opioids through the medical and pharmaceutical system down there, which has resulted in, in, in hundreds of thousands of Americans losing their lives. Here in Canada, we've lost 30,000 people to overdose, uh, overdoses from opioids. And so why would a company that is engulfed in all these scandals and by the way, has helped foreign governments uh, commit vile abuses against their people. The list goes on. Why would Trudeau award all these sole-sourced, uncompetitive contracts of over $100 million to this company, whose director is his close personal friend, that yeah. the Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, said had a direct line to the Prime Minister? Why did they get all this money? What exactly did they do for it? And what is the total? Speaking to federal conservative leader Pierre Polyev, the federal government's contracts with this consulting company, McKinsey and Company. Speaking of the federal finance minister, Christia Freeland, let's play a clip of her and I'll get your thoughts. So here she is talking about uh, the former head of this company here, Dominic Barton, who was recently appointed as Canada's ambassador to China. And you'll hear her describe... Uh, her personal relationship with, with this man and also the Prime Minister's. Let's have a listen here. I've known him for a long time. Uh, the Prime Minister knows him well as well. Dominic is a person who has that level of trust, first and foremost, with the Prime Minister and also with me. Okay, what is wrong with that? Well, it's liberal cronies again, getting big money contracts to do work, uh, in some cases, of little or no value, according to public servants who have told the reporters that McKinsey came in, got paid out, and didn't deliver anything valuable to taxpayers. The second thing is, a lot of people are wondering, 
How is it possible Trudeau added a half trillion dollars of new debt, added more debt than all previous prime ministers combined, and yet everything's worse? We have higher poverty, worse health care, worse border security, uh, uh, worse uh, inflation. How did he spend so much to achieve so little? One of the areas he's blowing it is $15 billion plus for high-priced consultants. That's just what we've been able to tally up so far. That works out to $1,000 for every family in Canada. It is a nearly 100% increase in contracting out. And this, while the public service has grown by 30%. You know, you wonder, why couldn't the public servants do the work rather than these high-priced $1,000 an hour consultants? And the, the answer appears to be that a lot of liberal cronies are getting really rich. Okay. You briefly touched on the issue of dangerous opioids, the overdose, overdose deaths we've seen across our country. We've got new numbers just out here today in British Columbia about a near record high number of overdose deaths last year in our province. Again, today is decriminalization day in British Columbia. Possession of a small amounts of these hard drugs, heroin, cocaine, um, meth, crystal meth, fentanyl. You'll be allowed to possess small amounts of these drugs. You won't be charged. Police will not seize the drugs. This kicks in today. Do you think this is the right, the right path to go down for our province? No, we're, we've already seen the answer to that question. Drugs, uh, hard drugs have largely been decriminalized in Vancouver now for five, six years. That's when the federal liberal government, the provincial NDP and the then NDP mayor basically told the cops, don't enforce the law. If you find some, someone with fentanyl, heroin, uh, or other hard drugs, just let them go. And what has happened? Well, take a, a, a walk down the east side to see Justin Trudeau and the NDP paradise playing itself out. People are living in tents. They are dying in record numbers of overdoses. In BC, overdose deaths are, are up 300% since Trudeau took office. The approach of flooding our streets with easy access to these hard, deadly drugs, has taken 30,000 lives since Justin Trudeau took, took office. He's had eight years. Eight years he's been prime minister. And what do we see? Massive increases in crime and overdoses. The answer is recovery and treatment. Get people off the streets into treatment so that they can have the hope of a drug-free life. And that's what a poly of government is going to deliver. What, what about safe supply of these drugs this could be the next step in british columbia there are lots of calls for this that if people are going to do these dangerous street drugs that are killing so many people anyway why not give them a so-called safe supply of pharmaceutical grade drugs that have been tested in a lab and that way if they're going to use the drugs anyway at least they won't die what do you think of that concept well it depends what you're talking about if you're talking about using medications like Methadone to reduce the pain and suffering withdrawal, that makes sense. Yeah. Talking about uh, um, other drugs that are meant to revive uh, um, people when they've overdosed, I agree with that as well. But we, we need to do is give people a path off drugs and into a drug-free life. That's what they're doing in neighboring Alberta. Treatment and recovery. They've doubled the number of treatment beds, and that has reduced the number of overdose deaths by half. So while... The, the NDP liberal approach of easy drugs available to everywhere with no law enforcement has led to a 300% increase in overdose deaths. Neighboring Alberta has taken the opposite approach, and they've cut overdose, uh, overdoses in half. Let's go with what works. 
Let's give people the hope of a drug-free life. Let's bring it home. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. Thank you very much. Hey, I heard my conversation there with Pierre Pauly of the federal conservative leader there just going after the Trudeau government here on these lucrative consulting contracts that have been handed out by to this company, McKinsey and Company, the former head of the company there appears to be pretty close pals with Trudeau and also with the federal finance minister, all the opposition parties in Ottawa on the attack over this one, uh, cabinet ministers being called to testify in front of parliamentary committees on all these contracts that have gone out the door to this company. Lots of consulting contracts uh, being approved by the Trudeau government. At the same time, the public service, uh, the direct public service is also expanding its payrolls. Check in with Franco Terrazano now, federal director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on today, Mike. Do you have any concerns about these contracts given to this McKinsey company? Oh, sure do. I sure yeah. do. And you know, Mr. Polyev, I was listening into that conversation. He raised a lot of concerns. Let me raise another one for you. I just read this last night that the federal government gave McKinsey a contract for IT services until the year 2100. You heard that right, an 81-year contract. Now, look, Mike, I'm the guy who screams at politicians for spending $6,000 on a hotel room or $8,000 on a sex toy show in Germany. I don't really know IT services, but I'm pretty sure you don't give a company a contract for 81 years. Okay, how does that happen? How can you get a contract that goes to that long? It was one of these open-ended contracts. (laughs) Yeah, Mike, I have no idea. I have no idea how this works, and that's why it's so important that we have this parliamentary committee uh, pressing members of the government to explain themselves, right? Sunlight is the best disinfectant. And Mike, we need a lot of disinfectant here, it seems like to me. Okay, there's a lot of money being spent on these consultants, and I guess every government does it, but it sounds like this government's really taken it to a new level here. Now, this is at the same time that the direct civil service, public servants in Canada, that's on the rise too, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the real issue here, right? That's the tens of billion dollar issue here facing taxpayers. You hear some reports of the government spending like $17 billion a year on consultants, spending more money on consultants. Well, we're also spending more for a ballooning bureaucracy. You know, we're spending about $55 billion a year on the federal government bureaucracy in Ottawa. If you add up the salaries and benefits, it's about $130,000 per full-time employee. And as the number of consulting contracts have gone up, the number of the bureaucracy has also gone up. Listen to this, Mike. Since 2015, 79,000 new bureaucrats added. 79,000 bureaucrats added. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't remember hearing about some great bureaucrat shortage in Ottawa before 2015. Okay, 2015, when Trudeau came to power here, now, yeah, it's a big country, it's a big government, they need people to work for it. Like, what do you think would be a reasonable number? If 79,000, 79, <laughs> sounds like a heck of a lot of bureaucrats, if that's too much, what, what would be a reasonable number? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Look, I don't know the exact number, but 79,000 is too much. But hold on a second here, because we're not just talking about an increased number of bureaucrats, we're talking about more bureaucrats with bigger salaries, which means higher taxes for Canadians. And here's the thing. Are we even getting value from all these consultants and bureaucrats and higher pay that we're paying? I don't know. If you've waited in a passport 
uh, office. I don't think you could say that we're getting uh, delivery, better delivery here. But here's another point, right? Not only are we seeing more bureaucrats, more consultants, but the bureaucrats are getting higher pay. So during the pandemic, when so many people lost their job, took a pay cut, maybe even lost their small business, 312,000 federal government employees received at least one raise during the pandemic. And now you have union negotiators in Ottawa pushing for up to a 47% compensation increase over three years. That would cost another $9.3 billion for taxpayers. So oh, wait, wait a second. Hang on, hang, on, hang, on a, hang on a second here. 47%. Where does that come from? That comes from the Treasury Board of Canada Secretariat. That is the government arm that is uh, negotiating with these types of unions. So the union, the PSAC, huh. which represents about 119,000 federal government employees, is pushing for a compensation increase of up to 47% over three years. The total demands would cost taxpayers $9.3 billion over those three years. Now, per, per bureaucrat, that works out to an extra $27,500 for each bureaucrat every year on average. Okay, those are the demands. We just have one minute left here, Franco. Those are the, the negotiating demands by the union, though, right? I mean, you always ask for the moon at the start of the negotiations, correct? <laughs> They're not asking for the moon, Mike. They're pushing for Pluto at this uh. point. Come on, 47% over three years. It's just uh. completely ridiculous. Okay, Franco, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on. Let's talk about rent control in BC now. Here's a brain buster for you here now. See if you can answer this one for me. Riddle me this. Why is UBC allowed to hike rents for students by up to 8% this year? Why? UBC just announced this. For students who live on campus in university residences, they will face a rent increase this year of up to 8%. That kicks in on May 1st. Why? Don't we have rent caps here in B.C.? This was announced by the B.C. government. The maximum allowable rent increase in our province this year is supposed to be 2%. 2%. So why is UBC hiking rents by up to 8%? The answer is they're not covered by the Provincial Act, the BC Residential Tenancy Act. So these other tenants are, are protected from these rent hikes. Why is UBC allowed to rent hike rents by 8%? I got Hunter Boucher standing by to discuss this. Now, have a listen to this here now. UBC student Manura Abdulwahid speaking to Global News. Have a listen. I think it's a little ridiculous, especially considering Vancouver does have a massive housing crisis right now. I do think that UBC probably does have enough funding to somehow allocate some sort of money to housing just so students don't have to pay more to live on campus. I've been hearing from landlords who say, like, wait a second here now. This government has basically frozen rents for three years. We're not allowed to raise the rent by more than 2% this year. And now UBC is raising rents by 8%? What is up with that? Let's talk about it with my guest, Hunter Boucher. He is the vice president 
of Landlord BC. And I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hunter, thanks a lot for coming on today. Very much. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mike, for having me on today. Yeah, you bet. So 2% is the maximum rent hike for landlords, not including UBC, it appears here, but for other landlords in BC. What is the impact of that when you have those type of rent restrictions for landlords? Well, the impact isn't minimal. Um, the reality is with the majority, a majority of landlords in our province being people who have one, two, maybe three units, their, their businesses some of them don't necessarily view it as a business, but their their operations um, and their costs to operate that that rental unit uh, have incre- increased significantly due to inflation, interest rates, which of course we know you know are are we're actually seeing we're seeing increases um, that we haven't seen in in over ten years, um, and and then you know not being able to to then increase the rent to to at least. Uh, you know, match the, the the operating cost increases have have meant in some cases, you know, a negative cash flow, yeah. which is, is is obviously impactful on on rental housing providers, but the rental housing ecosystem in general. How many years in a row? This is the third year in a row. I think we've had the BC government come in and say, no, we're going to put a, a a really tight cap on on rent increases." Right. Well, we've seen several years of rent freezes yeah. during the the initial. Uh, uh, pandemic, um, COVID nineteen pandemic, we saw an actual just freeze on rent increases. Prior to that, uh, there was actually a change to the formula of rent increases. It used to be two percent plus inflation. Right. It was then changed to just inflation, and then most recently, uh, given that inflation was going to be quite high, uh, five or six percent, yeah. it was capped. Uh, again, so so again, you're correct. It's been several years, more than three years, really. Yeah. How many? What kind of input costs do landlords face? I mean, for a lot of people out there, they might not feel like, oh, I'm not going to cry any tears for for the landlords. But let's talk about the how to, like you described it. This is they're trying to run a business. In some cases, it's a small business. So when you have an input cost as a landlord, I mean, that's got to be stuff like you mentioned interest rates. You mentioned inflation, but you know, uh, you're talking like insurance, repairs. Insurance is a big one. Yeah. Insurance is going to be one of the the the, the biggest costs that has seen inflation over the the last several years. Um, and then, as you say, repairs, um, repairs and maintenance have, costs have gone up astronomically. Uh, the cost to to get trades in to 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 get repairs done is is not. Is not not inconsequential, and this has gone up quite a bit. And the delays too to to get people in. It's hard to find people, um, so which can again increase those costs the, the longer things go go on on on, on dealt with. So you know those are the those are going to be the primary things. Um, the the interest rate for for um, anyone who is a homeowner who has especially a variable rate uh, at this point or recently got into the business at at one of these higher rates is, is obviously we, we, we can we, the impact of that is is quite clear yeah. um, but um, you know it, that that's a, a, a real um, a real decision making kind of impact sure. on on, on their business, they have to decide: Are we going to continue renting this space out? Yeah, how about stay in this business and provide this renting unit? We know about, that in BC, yeah, 
you know, there's so many of, of the uh, uh, tenants who, who rent from that secondary market, the, the people who have one or two units. So with having a few of those or many of those choose to leave the business is, is not a, a, a small impact. Yeah, see, this is the uh, the potential pitfall here for a lot of people. I've heard from landlords who say, like, you know, I've been renting out a, a suite in my house or whatever, or I, I have a, a property that I rent out, and you know what? I'm out of here. I, I, I can't make this work anymore with these rent caps. Have you heard that from any landlords who are just sort of, I'm, I'm getting out of the business of being a landlord, period. Forget it. Most certainly. Mm. And and that's something that is, is worrisome uh, for us because, again, in B.C., we have a disproportionate number of, 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 of landlords in that, that secondary market, uh, which means our rental housing ecosystem and renters are are disproportionately relying on that that secondary market. All right. So having a large swath of those landlords choose to leave the business is going to have a big impact on the housing that is available. So what do you think about UBC and this announcement that for students who are living on campus in residence that they could they will face a rent increase this year of up to eight percent? I mean, is that like what is that? Is that a is that a double standard? Is that hypocritical? I mean, I've, I've listened carefully to what the university is saying here, and they've said, well, you know, we have to put the rent up because of inflation, like one of the things that you just described. So how come they get to raise their rents by 8%, but you guys face this cap? Like, what do you think of that? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, it's good to understand that that post-secondary education or education uh, facilities um, who have housing on campus that they rent to to their students aren't covered by the Residential Tenancy Act. And there's many reasons for that, some of them quite good reasons. Um, there are different types of tenancy altogether. Um, so, you know, from that standpoint, that's that's understandable. And it's not just UBC. It could be any any. Um, UVic um, also, of course, has, has on-campus campus housing um, and, and such. So in terms of the amount they're increasing, I think it highlights the, the increase in costs that operators have. Yeah. Um, I think that it, it shows that the 2% that, that regular numbers was, got was, was not uh, adequate to to the costs that our our sector has faced, uh, so we have very similar costs to 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 UBC when it comes to to those types of things. What's um, your What's your message to the government here now? Do you think that they should lift these rent caps and go back to the, the previous system that they had in place that you outlined there? Well, I think that there's you know the the solution is 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 broad. There there needs to be an environment where there is greater investment in purpose-built rentals. So, A, we're not you know, having to rely so heavily on that secondary market. Um, and, of course, that you know, primary market in purpose-built rental becomes the affordable rent of, of, of the future. So that's really important. Um, and a big part of that is in making that environment, that positive environment for that investment, is ensuring that there's, there's stability within that. So there's a certain amount of, of certainty when it comes to knowing what you're getting into for the uh, as, as an investment, and with its constant changing of of the bar for rent increases, um, that certainty isn't there. Okay, Hunter, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it a lot. Perfect. Well, thank you for having me on.
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.